Well, I've never not been on the streets. So, you know, before Black Lives Matter, it wasn't every day, but I always say I was born into this work. Unless you have been under a rock, you have witnessed the sustained protests and expressions of outrage that have erupted around the world as millions are demanding justice for George Floyd and the thousand people killed each year by the police. Floyd's call for his mother with his final breaths has resonated with women all over this country. They heard his cry and those of thousands of mothers and fathers that have lost their sons and fathers and brothers and sisters to senseless police violence. And these women are taking action. They say the time for small steps and minor reforms has passed. No more compromises, no more incremental fixes. These badasses are demanding bold and sweeping changes to fix not only our criminal justice system, but to end the gross disparities that we see in our healthcare, our economic and our educational systems. I'm talking to some of these inspiring women today. My guests run the gamut from protest leaders to elected officials to a recent college graduate who literally had the gumption to ask that we even change the way we think about and define the word racism. So let's get at it. My first guest is Dr. Melina Abdullah. She is chair of the Department of the Pan-African Studies at Cal State LA. She's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter LA chapter. She's a mother and an outspoken change agent. Good morning, Dr. Abdullah, or can I call you Melina because we are friends. I think I got to get you to turn your mic on. Talking because I'm and I'm muted. Uh, you know you can call me Melina. Okay. Uh, Just checking. I want to be proper. I want to give you all of your, you know, your your proper titles because you have accomplished so much. And I'm so happy. You know, we see each other. We pass each other. We've even been on shows together. But I have not had a chance to sit down and interview you. So I'm super excited. Because when I think of a woman on the front lines fighting for justice, of course, your name is at the top of that list because you've just done so much. But before we talk about all of that, I want to talk about Melina, the mother, Melina, the woman. So just tell me about your kids. How are they doing? How old are they now? And what's going on with the girls? They're great. I have three children. So I have a 16-year-old, 13-year-old, and my son is 10. Um, and my daughter just graduated early from high school. So um, my oldest daughter is 16 and she just graduated from LACES and is headed on to Howard University in the fall. Our fingers are crossed that there won't be like a semester cancellation or that it won't be online. Um, but she just makes me, all of them make me so proud. She's an organizer in her own right. She's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Youth Vanguard um, and has been doing a lot of work with these young people to end police violence in schools and to make Black Lives Matter in schools. And so that's my oldest. My middle is uh, my greatest joy and my greatest frustration. <laughs> She's my middle child, of course. Uh-huh. But she was that before she was a middle child. She was always a free spirit. Um, and then my son is loving the safer at home. He is happy to be at home. He does not miss school at all. And, um, you know, he is who he is. So they definitely ground me 
and I'm grateful to be their mom, things can be overwhelming. And sometimes it's our parenting that really keeps us grounded and reminds us why we do what we do. Well, first of all, I, I want to make a correction because I said, tell me how the girls are doing. I meant no disrespect to the son. Uh, your family structure is very similar to mine. I have two older daughters and then my youngest is a son. So we both have three kids and can't forget our boys, even though they are surrounded by lots of women. And I know, Melina, from your story, you're a single mom. So I'm sure people, when they see you out at protests and they see you at all of these meetings, they're wondering how in the world can a single mother of three, you know, manage all that you manage? So what is it like trying to, you know, manage your, your justice work, which I know is so important to you, but you're also a professor, you're a chair of a department, and you're a single mom. So speak to the women out there that wear all of those hats, because they want to know how you are doing it. Well, one of the things I really love is... Um, Black Lives Matter, we made a commitment to not do in this movement what has been done to women in previous movements. So we enter the movement as our whole and complete selves. So anybody who sees me at a protest almost every single time, you'll see my children with me. Um, we have disrupted this um, nuclear family structure, which is really rooted in white supremacy, right? It's not who we are as African people. We believe, you know, the saying it takes a village to raise a child um, has always been true for us. So many of the folks in the movement became aunties and uncles to my children. And so they nurture them differently. So my middle child, who I said is my free spirit, I can't nurture her art. But Yasmin can because she's an artist. So she becomes auntie or big sister to Amara. Right. And so um, that's the only way to do it and maintain a, a relative degree of sanity. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that's that's how we do it. And the children, you know, I don't force anything on them, but they know that they have a role just like I have a role to transform the world. You know, you don't just get to step into this world as a black person and benefit from the struggles of Harriet Tubman and Nat Turner and Ella Baker and Ida B. Wells and Huey P. Newton and Martin Luther King and then just think you get to sit on the couch and watch reality TV. You have to work for the next generation. And so my children know that. I love that. I love that you are instilling those values. Uh, hats off to the 16-year-old on her way to Howard. That's going to be an amazing experience. I was there at the graduation last year when we could still move about the world because my niece graduated uh, from Howard. And uh, just being on that campus is, is so amazing, being around, surrounded by all of that, that Black you know, excellence that, that is a part of the legacy of Howard University. Uh, you know, I, I stalked you a little on social to get ready for this interview. <laughs> I'm a come clean. I'm a, I'm a social media stalker when I'm interviewing someone. And I saw you on vacation. And I just want to ask you again, before we get to all of your justice work, what, you know, what do you do for fun? Where were you in this beautiful beach? Looks like glamour photo shoot kind of picture. <laughs> I don't know that it was glamour, but it was one of the most fulfilling trips of my life. Um, so when you said I'm a single mom, I want to be real clear. I'm a completely single mom. There is no other parent who's contributing to the raising of my children. My family lives in the Bay Area, not in L.A. Um, I have extended family and chosen family in L.A., but 
being able to take time to really nurture my spirit is something I hadn't done away from the children. And so last summer, Dominique DePrima leads a trip to Africa every year. Last summer, they went to Ghana and it was the year of return and I was committed to going. And I'm grateful that my mama and baba came down from the Bay Area and stayed with the children for two weeks, um, more than two weeks, um, so that I could go and be nurtured and fulfilled in Ghana. The photo that you showed was me um, at the Almina slave dungeons before we went into the dungeons, of course. Um, but it was a transformational trip. It was... Um, you know, everybody tells you what it's like to be on the continent. And I've been on the continent before to North Africa, to Egypt and Morocco. But this was my first time going to West Africa. I walked into this um, space and it was as if like I can't even pretend like the ancestors might have been there. They weren't. They were palpably there. It would be like denying, you know, a person sitting in front of you. And I just began to sob. And um, I happened to have, and it, all of these worlds collide, right? I happened to have um, these buttons that I carry with um, the photos of some of the folks who were stolen by police violence. And I swear that I could hear the voice of A.J. Weber. I didn't know which buttons I had, but I heard A.J. Weber's voice from the bus where we were that we were being transported on call out and say, don't leave me. And so both he and Keisha Michael. And there was someone else. There was a third person. Um, who called out and I reached in my backpack and those were the buttons that I had. Mm -hmm. And so I went down, you know, we went down to the river and did this um, ritual of cleansing ourselves. Um, and I did it with the spirits of them, you know, and it felt like it gave them some rest, some peace. Um, so it was just a transformational experience. And I pray that, uh, borders open up again soon because, you know, I'm committed. I was committed to traveling to the continent at least once a year. And so our plan was to go to Ethiopia this summer that we didn't get to go. Mm -hmm. um, but we're hoping that in the, when, that when things go, go, I'll take the whole family. Um, last thing, and I know I'm being long winded, but I'm a professor, you know, we talk a lot. <laughs> um, I have a tradition. We have a tradition in our family. All my children have African names. So the summer of their 13th birthday, I try to take them to the country that their name is from. So this would be the 13th summer of my daughter, Amara, whose name is from Ethiopia, from the Amharic people. And so that was the goal was to go there this year with all the children um, so I'm praying that that happens before she turns 14. 
So you mentioned being a professor, and yes, uh, you are a professor, Cal State LA, very noted professor uh, working around issues, of, you know, historical issues of race and justice. So how did that transformation happen from you being inside a classroom to you being literally on the streets of LA, sometimes day and night, around the clock, leading protest movements? Well, I've never not been on the streets. So... You know, before Black Lives Matter, it wasn't every day, but I always say I was born into this work. Um, I'm from Oakland in the 70s, right? I'm the Panther Cub generation, right? All of our parents are activists. My generation, all of our parents were 70s activists. And um, I inherited that. You know, if you're from Oakland during my, in my generation, you cannot be born into the world and not think that you have an obligation to make change. Um, I think things intensified around two things. One, the struggle for ethnic studies um, in the CSU system. Um, and so I was a part of that. I was a leader in fighting for ethnic studies. Um, and then two, the development of Black Lives Matter, the birth of Black Lives Matter. So it was the founding members of Black Lives Matter were called together by Patrice Cullors one of our co-founders and one of my dearest friends on earth. Um, and she asked the third day of protests um, after Zimmerman was acquitted for the murder of Trayvon Martin. She said, meet at her uh, community. It's called St. Elmo Village, which is a black artist community in Mid-City. Uh, meet there in the middle of the night. And so I had been in the streets for three days with my students um, and so we all went and met. And so there were about 30 of us, um, mostly Patrice's friends, artists, organizers, but may, almost half of us were students and faculty from Pan-African Studies at Cal State LA. And since then, July 2013, you know, the level of being in the streets right. has absolutely increased. And you mentioned the, the acquittal of George Zimmerman, and we watched that play out. We watched what happened with respect to Trayvon Martin, and we know that Trayvon's death, his untimely death, was was the impetus for, as you just indicated, the founding of Black Lives Matter. We're seven years uh, since th that acquittal. So how are things now, and what's different? What's happened over that seven years that's significant? Right. So I just want to... Um one of the things that I've been feeling like I need to say is that when we talk about those whose bodies were stolen, it's important that we call it a murder, um, that it is not just a death. Trayvon did not die because, you know, of some tragedy like a car accident or by some natural occurrence. Right. He didn't have a disease. Right. It was Zimmerman who engaged in white supremacist terrorism that stole the life of our son. I think this moment also illuminates this, right? Everyone has watched the murder of George Floyd. Everyone has watched as Derek Chauvin really um, illustrated for the world how uh, policing in this country evolves from slave catching. And I think that the reason we're seeing the level of uproar, um, the level of upheaval, the revolution that I think brew is brewing is because um, this is a bit different. One, there's the way in which George Floyd's life was stolen, 
and we watched it happen over a period of almost nine minutes with Shalvin really invoking the spirits of, you know, slave catchers. You could see it on his face that he felt that he had the right to steal this life over the cries of George Floyd, but also the um, attempted interventions of people who were sidelined. I really want to point out how um, in the midst of this tragedy and this outrage, the potential that's there because there were people standing there who attempted to not just film, but physically intervene. And um, I don't know who they are, but I want to tell them thank you. And the only reason they weren't allowed to knock Chauvin back is because he pulled a weapon on them. And so if you watch that video, you can watch that happen. Um, so I think that it's different because we saw it all happen. And again, it points to the history of slave catching. But I think that something else is different. And that is um, actually two things. One that I, someone awakened me to last night. But um, what I've been saying is that this is the first time we've had an uprising where there was already a movement built to address it. So Black Lives Matter has been around for seven years. This is what we've been organizing around for seven years. And so we were ready to move. We had already been saying defund the police. We had already been saying no more tinkering around the edges of police reform. And so immediately there is this clarion call that's echoing globally that policing in this country cannot continue in its current form. And so I think that has a lot to do with what's developed through Black Lives Matter. And quickly, the third thing that I was awakened to yesterday by my comrade, my young comrade, Haywan Asfa, we were having a conversation around what defund the police means. And she was saying that one of the reasons this moment is different is because of the pandemic. Not because we've been locked in the house and we need to get out because black folks are not thrill seekers, right? Um, and we know we're disproportionately impacted by um, COVID-19. So this is an additional risk we're willing to take on. But what she was saying is the seeds of mutual aid have been planted through the pandemic. No one has come to save us. Cities, counties, states, national government has not even earmarked funds specifically for black people. They've hidden what's happening to us through coronavirus under this larger umbrella of people of color and not gotten to the specific ways in which black folks are threatened through this health pandemic and the economic fallout. And so we have relied on each other in a way that we haven't in the past. We've invoked something from the 18th century that was practiced in the early 18th century, right? The practice of mutual aid, the practice of remembering that all we have is each other. We got us. And so that's also a part of what we're experiencing now. I know, and I, you, I think hit upon what um, a lot of people are feeling, Melina, is that this is different and it feels different and it is different. I know for me as a mother, one of the things that I find so painful about the George Floyd video is his last words, his last breaths, going into almost like an infantile state where you're calling out for your mother. Right. How did that 
touch you, resonate with you as a mother of a black son, as a mother of, of three black children, that just ripped through me in, in a way that I, I'm not sure any, and I, have, I can't watch the video anymore. I'm, you know, I, I, I talk about this for a living. I've got to be informed with the news, obviously, but that just ripped at my heart in a way that very few things have. How did that touch you as a mother? It absolutely touched me. Um, and you see, I can't really talk too deeply about it without tearing up. Um, and I want to lift up that this is not the only murder that I've seen on video that has done this to me, right? Each one of them touched me differently. You know, I think about the murders that happen right here in Los Angeles. We're now up to 608 people being killed in Los Angeles County um, since this district attorney took office, which is why we protest outside Jackie Lacey's office every Wednesday. Um, and so George Floyd absolutely deserves our attention, but it's also important that we move from where we're from. So I think about on Wednesday, um, the father of, um, see, here I go, the father of A.J. Weber, who was 16 years old when he was murdered more than two years ago on Super Bowl Sunday as he was leaving a Super Bowl party. Um, he was there on Wednesday and as thousands of us were gathered, and this is also how the moment is different, right? There has not been a protest yet. Even the ones we haven't announced online that have brought fewer than three to 5,000 people when we organize them, right? So there were about 5,000 folks in front of Jackie Lacey's office on Wednesday. And there was this crowd echoing and chanting these things like defund the police. Um, on Sunday, I think you may be showing the one in Hollywood that brought more than 100,000 people to the streets. Um, but Wednesday, there were about 5,000 folks out and it was hot and there was chance. And we were kind of recognizing that we have to prosecute killer cops and remove DAs who refuse to do so. But what cut through for me, and we give the mic to the families, let the families occupy center stage. And so there were all these families there. But what cut through to me wasn't the families who were on the mic. It was Mr. Weber, AJ's father, who was in the background, standing behind these barricades that had been constructed around a hall of justice that we pay for, right? Guarded by the National Guard and the Sheriff's Department heavily, right? With guns drawn on people who've already been traumatized by police violence. And Mr. Weber kept crying out with this picture of AJ going, but what about my son? What about my son? And he was um, completely overwhelmed by this idea that as a father, there's absolutely nothing he can do to get his son's life back. And no one is giving him answers. No one is offering any semblance of justice. So all he can do is say, what about my son? And you hear the moms cry out. So it's absolutely George Floyd, but it's all of these 608 real people who are more than hashtags, you know? 
And I'm so glad you said that because sometimes this movement, particularly now for me, Melina, feels like there are folks who want to co-opt this movement. You see people jumping out of their cars to jump into protests that are happening, hold up their sign so that they can post it on Instagram so they can say they were at a protest. Uh, that's disturbing on, on so many different levels. Uh, I, I want to go back, though, to you, you mentioned Jackie Lacey. And if you live in Los Angeles, or even if you don't live in Los Angeles, people know that Jackie Lacey, the first African-American district attorney elected to one of the largest DA's office in the country, uh, that was considered a historic election. We were getting our first black district attorney. Now you uh, and Black Lives Matter have been on a mission to get Jackie Lacey out of office. Again, I stalked your Instagram page and uh, it, you make no bones about it. Jackie Lacey uh, has to go. You, you said that repeatedly throughout the protest. Some folks, Melina, in the black community ask, why are these two powerful black women, both who have accomplished so much, both who have done so much in terms of public service, why can't they get along? Why are they at odds with each other in, in such a public way at a time when we're calling on community to come together. What do you say to those people that are having a difficult time understanding uh, that you all may have policy differences, but that this fight feels more personal? Well, the fight is not personal. Um, although the political is personal, right? So I guess there's that element of personal. Let me be real clear. I knew Jackie Lacey, right? So you know, Ariva, that I had been in political circles where people were looking at me, right? And I was being introduced to all of these elected officials and I was considered an up and comer, right? <laughs> and um, people were grooming me, you know? That's and true. so I was, <laughs> I was in circles with Jackie Lacey. And in, um, what year was that? Seven years ago in 2013? Is that seven years ago? Yeah, that's when she, so 2012 was the election. In her second term, uh, being up in November for a third term. Right. So in 2012, when she first ran, I voted for her. Um, when she first took office, I actually, when we were protesting Charlie Beck, the chief of police, the white chief of police, I said, you know what, Jackie Lacey is different. Let's try meeting with her. The first meetings that we had with her were very cordial. I hugged her, you know. Um, but at a certain point, we have to heed the words of Zora Neale Hurston. All skin folk ain't kin folk. And if you are moving in a way that advances your individual ambition ahead of the needs of our community, you have to be pulled for it. There have always been betrayers of Black community. And I feel that Jackie Lacey with the blood of 608 people, and I guess now 609 people given the murder that took place last night um, up in Lancaster, you all know that a 60 year old black man was murdered um, by LA County Sheriff last night in Lancaster um, with the blood of those folks on her hands because she refuses to hold police accountable because she's taking millions upon millions of dollars from police associations, the Police Protective League, and the LA County Sheriff's Association who back her for re-election. When she does that, 
We can't black back her because she happens to be black. We've always had people like her. We've always had people who've been willing to, you know, serve as black overseers. We've always had people who've um, been willing to sell folks out. Remember, shoot, think about the the last administration before Obama. We had a kind of Lisa Rice, right? And so we need to think about what it means to really authentically represent black people. And I know you're a, a legal expert. Uh, Lonnie Guineer talks about that all the time. You know, what is authentic representation? And we can talk a long time about your comments or your allegations against Jackie and in fairness to her, you know, I'm sure she has some response to that. I had her on my show actually two days ago and she says she has a very different record and that her record has been distorted. But I want to move further because I could talk to you for hours. You can't stay here right now. Denark and I have some other guests waiting, so I got to fast forward. But I just want to ask you this. The Fox viewer that's sitting at home that says, you know, these these lefties are, are, you know, driving the country into chaos and anarchy. And why is it Black Lives Matter? Why aren't they saying all lives matter? How do you explain this movement to that 60-year-old white person who gets their news from, from Fox and who thinks that somehow that if we change policing in this country, if we address systemic racism in this country, you know, it's going to be the, the you know, doomed to everything that they worked so hard for and that, the, you know, that they believe this country is and should be. How do you explain this movement to them? Well, one, I don't spend a lot of time trying to convince Fox viewers, right? Um, some people are just white supremacists and, you know, why waste our breath on them, right? But for the folks who are genuinely asking the question, why do we say Black Lives Matter? Black people stand at the bottom of virtually every single social, political, and economic measure. And that is because of a legacy of white supremacy and anti-blackness. Um, there's a metaphor that um, this cartoonist sketched out brilliantly, right? And there were two houses sitting next to each other. One was ablaze, the other one wasn't. And the firefighters were dousing the house that was not ablaze with water. And the caption read, all houses matter, right? We are the house on fire. And right. so we have to put out the fire that black people are experiencing. And actually you protect the house that's not on fire by making sure you put out the blaze in our house, right? Because then that fire won't jump. And so that's why we say Black Lives Matter, that we have to begin with the house on fire. Excellent way of explaining that. And you're right, Melina, some people will never get it. And you have to write those people off. But there are genuinely uh, people, and I'm sure you have them, friends, colleagues at the university. I have them, colleagues who are asking, what can they do in this moment? And, I, and this is a time I want to bring in uh, a young activist. Her name is Naila Dean. I want to bring her into this conversation because she's one of those activists that's at the beginning of her uh, advocacy journal uh, journey. And I think she's asking, what is it that she can do? She wrote a powerful op-ed piece for The Insider last week about George Floyd and the silence of the Muslim community around racism and policing in America. So let's welcome into the conversation, Naila Dean. Hi, Naila. Just turn your mic on for us. 
Hi, how are you? Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure you've heard uh, all the inspirational words from uh, Dr. Abdullah, uh, and I'm going to have her talk to you in uh, in a minute. But first, I want to ask you, you know, what risk did you take uh, in your own community by writing such a powerful piece and really calling out? members of the Muslim community for their silence on some of these, you know, really critical issues. Yeah, um, it's definitely, it's, it's still something that I'm, you know, nervous about. Um, I really love my, my faith community. Um, they've been great to me overall. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something that needed to be addressed. Um, you know, our faith compels us to speak again against any evil actions, any, any wrongdoings. And, um, you know, by addressing the recent police brutality and the murder of George Floyd, um, I, I couldn't just address that without confronting the issue that is it within our community of like deep seated racism. Um, and so, you know, it, it is hard to, to call people out. It's, it's not actually something that, you know, I find enjoyable, but I think it was necessary to do. And I'll ask you, Melina, who are some people that you think have been silent? during, you know, just throughout this process that you think we should hear more from? Who would you call out? Sure. So I just want to say salam alaikum to the young sister and um, uplift that, one, I'm grateful that you felt the need to do that and found the courage to do that. Um, And I also want to uplift that Black Muslims have been very active in this work. So, um, you know, my daughter, Tandiwe Abdullah, is very entrenched in our community, in our faith community. I'm not as entrenched, I say, that I'm Muslim-ish, right? Um, um, But, you know, people like Miski Noor in Minneapolis who are leading work on the ground, um, people like Zach Muhammad here in Los Angeles, but also um, faith communities like Islam and Imam Jihad have been very outspoken and active. Um, and Muslim Ark, my dearest sister, uh, Kenyatta Bakir, um, has been very active. So I think really what the young sister, who the young sister is calling out is the non-Black Muslims who have felt that they don't have to step into this work. Um, I would say that that extends beyond the Muslim community. Just this Monday, we had a march that really centered clergy of all faiths. And what we saw was a lot of black Christians who were cozying up to white power, right? Who were not only being silent, but in some ways undermining um, the work that we're doing is Black Lives Matter. So you saw these black preachers as we're marching in the streets actually go to LAPD, pray with and kneel with the police chief who himself, Michael Moore, is an actual killer cop. He actually pulled the trigger t- twice, killing one person as a beat cop, right? Um, praying with him, uh, kneeling with him, And then having Eric Garcetti come out for a photo op, right, which was clearly meant to undermine the work that we're doing on the ground. You've seen also other folks who see see themselves as respectable, respectable Negroes, right, who come out and, you know, see this as an entree point. Oh, well, there's about to be dollars for people of color. Right. That's what Garcetti said. Right. How can I get some of those dollars? How can I? Um, really prey upon the work of the people in the streets. Um, And so I did a calling in on Monday at that gathering. 
and said that it is not the tradition of black people to use this moment to cozy up to white supremacy. We can't call the names of Harriet Tubman and Ella Baker and Martin Luther King and then not be willing to confront white supremacy with our whole hearts. So I'm very grateful to young people like Naila, right? Mm -hmm. Sister Naila, who are willing to step up. They are so courageous. I look at, um, I say, I, I like Gen Xers, okay, but y'all Gen Z folks, oh my God, I love y'all. Y'all are just so courageous and audacious and know that the change that you vision will come to pass if you continue to work for it. So alhamdulillah for you and um, just very grateful for your work. So Naila, you are just starting out on this journey. I know you're a lawyer, you're writing a memoir. Uh, you, you wrote this very bold piece about, you know, what's going on in your own faith community. W what lessons can you learn from Melina and, and how do you take some of what she's done uh, and put it into practice in terms of your own advocacy? Yeah, I, I think, um, she, you know, hearing her it just taught me to be consistent and, and getting out there, getting, you know, being a vocal supporter of um, protecting black uh, lives, um, because as she said, it, it's not something that she's been doing, you know, in the last seven years. It, it's been her, throughout her entire life, um, something that her parents taught her. And I, I hope that, you know, one day when I have children, that I'll be able to pass that, that tradition on to them about, you know, consistently, you know, getting out there and um, speaking up to to the truths and condemning um, any violence. Well, so, Melina, before I let you go, I just want to ask you about your uh, Share the Mic Now campaign. You've got some pretty uh, impressive women involved in this campaign. Hillary Clinton, Julia Roberts, Hillary Swank, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. What's going on with this uh, project? And you've done this in conjunction with some actors from Pose, right? Yeah, well, this is not my idea. I was very grateful to be included. Um, some people know that we've been in relationship with Chelsea Handler for some time. She was one of the people um, who was involved in it. Um, Share the Mic is recognizing that if, you know, women, white women want to say that they're in solidarity with black women, then they got to just not say it. They got to do something. So um, on Wednesday, 50 white women influencers from Chelsea Handler to Sophia Bush to Ellen DeGeneres to, uh, um, you know, Hillary Clinton gave up their Instagrams, like literally handed them over and we got to take them over for the day. So, you know, I, I thought I had a pretty good following, but Chelsea Handler, who's I took over, has four million followers. Right. And so it was an opportunity for us to really um, talk about what it is we do with this much larger audience. So to talk about what we mean when we say defund the police, to talk about why Jackie Lacey must go, to uplift the voices of these families and to really invite you know, followers who I didn't really think about that Chelsea's followers are also different than mine. So I got some who didn't like what I had to say, right? Um, but to expose them to our work. And so Share the Mic was just a really beautiful and powerful experience that we're going to continue to do. 
Well, on that note, and I always like to end on a positive and something uplifting, and I'm glad you got to share your message with 4 million other people who typically maybe wouldn't even know the work that you're doing and know how important it is. And so thank you uh, for taking advantage of that opportunity to lift your voice up yet in another forum. Thank you, Naila, for joining us and for the work that you are doing. You're at the beginning, but boy, you have so much potential uh, and follow the lead of Melina because she is setting the example for so many young people in terms of how they can lift their voice up and be a part of this positive change that's happening. I I gotta run, but can I say one quick thing to Sister Naila? Naila, this is a group-centered movement. That means that there's no one single leader. You know, that's a womanist practice Mm -hmm. um, and praxis. Um, we'd love to have you involved. Um, so please, you know, I'll send my information or Riva has my information. I would love to be connected. Um, I'd love to, if you're in law school, we have a whole legal team. We would love to have you contribute in whatever way you can. We also have a sacred resistance team that is working with faith communities. So please plug in. We'd love to have your energy and spirit. Please take a moment to share, subscribe, and rate this podcast. I always want to hear your thoughts. You can share your comments with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn by following at Ariva Martin. Thanks and be safe out there.